The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Schneider Electric is pioneering modular and scalable microgrids that can island themselves and operate autonomously from the grid. Microgrids are not a single technology, but rather a combination of proven technologies that can meet the needs of regions small or large. Schneider Electric has hundreds of microgrids deployed, and you can find out more at the link in our show notes to see if Schneider's microgrids will work for you. The Interchange is also brought to you by NextTracker, the world's leading solar tracking solutions company. NextTracker works with customers to advance the power plant of the future by connecting smart trackers with the TrueCapture Advanced Control software. TrueCapture optimizes performance and increases energy yield and also reduces costs for developers. Find out more at nexttracker.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. And this week, we're talking carbon removal. If we want to make sure the planet doesn't overheat, we don't want to just slow emissions output. We need to dramatically slash greenhouse gas emissions, stripping them from the atmosphere, the oceans, and from industry. In this episode, my co-host Shale Khan talks with an expert conversant in the language of Carbonville, as he calls it, and that is Dr. Julio Friedman. Julio's focus is on carbon management. Not the most exciting description of his expertise, but this conversation was anything but dull. Shale and Julio talk about all the main technological methods of removing CO2, along with the benefits and drawbacks of forestry management. This is a really popular topic right now, and I think these two do it justice, and I hope we'll talk about this more on the show. Shale is going to intro Julio, so we'll just get right into it. Here's Shale. Net zero carbon pledges are heating up, so to speak. Japan just committed to reaching net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, just four weeks after China did the same by 2060. It's now seven of the 10 largest economies in the world, excepting the US, India, and Brazil that have made similar commitments. And that's on top of all the subnational players, the corporates, the individuals, all the other actors who are committing to some form of net zero emissions. But along the way, I think it's become increasingly clear that we are unlikely to reach net zero at any significant scale without some pretty heavy carbon management. And that means things like carbon capture, carbon removal, carbon utilization. We'll talk more about what those mean. And partially as a result of that, the carbon management sector, to the extent that it is a sector, has seen a a frenzy of activity over the past couple of years, ranging from lots of new research, interest in policy, to investment uh, and innovation on the technology side. Just this year, we've seen venture capital, for example, flow into companies that are protecting forests, that are sequestering carbon in the soil, that are capturing CO2 directly from the air, and that are converting captured CO2 into a range of products from cement to jet fuel. So we want to make sense of all of this, both the economics, does this stuff make any sense, Uh, the technology, what is this stuff, and the underlying policy landscape, how do we get this stuff done? And there is quite literally no one better to have that conversation with than the man who is known as the carbon wrangler, Julio Friedman, who joins me here. Julio is a senior research scholar at the Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy, former DOE official focused on carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration, and is widely known and recognized as an expert on so-called carbon management. Julio, hello. It's a treat to be here. Thank you, Shale. Thank you so much for for being here. Um, Let's start with 
an overview of what you mean when you talk about carbon management at the high level. What is it and why do we need it? Right. So for me, I wake up every morning thinking about tons. If you're not thinking about tons of CO2, you should, because uh, many of us think about things like deploying clean energy or achieving some, you know, uh, investment hurdle or something like that. At the end of the day, nature is autistic. It thinks about tons of CO2 in the atmosphere. That's what drives global warming. And there's only three things that people can do that actually reduce tons in the atmosphere. One of them is you can do efficiency and conservation. That works. Second, you can do carbon management, which is what we're talking about today. Third, you can shut things down. That's the full menu. It's not very big. And so a lot of what we think about when we think about a clean energy transition and stuff, it's a bank shot. It's about building something that will allow us to do the plant shutting down or something like that. So here's a novel idea. If you want to manage carbon dioxide emissions, how about you manage carbon dioxide emissions? Go right after the stuff, take care of the problem where it lives. And the idea of carbon management is not new, obviously, but it does feel like there is a lot more activity in that space now, at least to me, than it, than it felt like a couple of years ago. Is that your sense as well? And why, if so? Absolutely. Very much the case. And uh, there's two things that really shuck up the gumball machine that sort of brought people into this uh, realization. One of them was the framing of net zero. When the idea is you have to just reduce stuff over some time frame, there's lots of things you can do. Net zero is very clarifying because it means you can't emit anything anywhere ever. It also means that if you emit anything, you must unemit an equal amount. Can you define unemit? Yes. So uh, CO2 removal broadly is unemit. And let me take a second and define three different things in Carbonville that helps your audience sort these things out. One of them is avoiding emissions. So let's say that you're going to build a coal plant and instead you build a solar plant. That's avoided emissions. Okay. So it's, it's avoiding the growth of emissions. Then there's reducing emissions. So if you replace a coal plant with a solar plant, that is reducing emissions, okay? Things like carbon capture on the back end of a steel mill, also reducing emissions. The third thing though is removing emissions. That is taking stuff that's already in the air and oceans out of the air and oceans. That's what I mean when I say unemitting. So that includes things like uh, technology-enabled solutions like direct air capture or carbon mineralization, or these sort of managed ecosystem approaches sometimes called nature-based solutions, things like adding new forests, putting carbon back into soils. And those three flavors have very different sensibilities. Avoided growth is not reduction and reduction is not removal. They're all separate things. And every one of those is like its own short course. Like there's a lot of stuff behind these things. Uh, you know, often I find myself in podcasts or in panel discussions where one person is like, we're doing power sector restructuring. And somebody else is like, we are doing power sector demand futures. And like another one is like, we're doing power sector technologies. And then it's like, oh, Julio, tell us about the rest of the economy and everything else we can do there. And so if you just keep avoid, remove and reduce in your head as separate things, it facilitates this conversation. And it also brings forward why we got to do what we do. Because if you got to unemit 10 billion tons of CO2 a year, like that is a tall, tall order. And you got to create 
an industry the size of the oil and gas industry that works in reverse, and you kind of got to do that in 30 years. So suddenly, there's a lot of interest in this. That gets to the second point as to why people are interested in this. It's not just net zero, it's suddenly countries are making these commitments. And so that came out of the IPCC report. It's come out of the Paris Agreement and stuff. So if you're, say, the Netherlands, forget China for now, if you're the Netherlands, and you got to do 40% emissions reduction in 10 years' time, and you already have all the wind energy in the world, like there's not a lot of stuff you can do. You can do some EVs, but they've already done EVs. You can build offshore wind, they've already done that. So you look around, you go, what else is left? Like, what's the next thing you can do? And it looks pretty hard. And suddenly things like carbon capture, carbon utilization, carbon removal, that stuff becomes more interesting because it's just the next thing. So let's talk about some of those categories individually. You just mentioned three, carbon capture, carbon utilization, carbon removal. Um, So why don't we take them in that order? So starting with carbon capture, my understanding of that space is you can basically subdivide it into two categories. There's point source carbon capture, and then there's direct air capture. Is that how you think about it as well? And can you just sort of define each of those and kind of high level weigh the trade-offs between the two? Sure. Um, And you got it right. There's basically point source capture where you're capturing from a large centralized facility, steel mill, paper plant, natural gas fired, combined cycle power plant, whatever. Uh, But it's a one place in like one square kilometer that emits a bunch of CO2. In that case, you're basically capturing from the smokestack or something like it. And there, the concentrations of CO2 are like 8%, 10%, 12% CO2. And that gives you an engineering advantage that lets you harvest all that CO2 at relatively modest cost. So there today, sort of on the market, you can get $70 a ton capture kind of off the shelf. And there's a bunch of companies that are heading towards $50 or $30 a ton capture. Hey, that looks interesting. Okay. Or you can take CO2 out of the air. Air is 0.04% CO2 concentration. It's really, really, really low concentration. So if you're talking about it from like chemical engineering, you pay a lot more to do that. You need more energy and it takes more money because you got to touch more air and you got to move more air. And you have these very low partial pressures, like you're fighting that problem. The flip side of that is that is already cheaper than stuff like decarbonizing an airplane. It's already cheaper than decarbonizing certain industrial applications. And even if you got rid of those emissions, we do things like we put fertilizer on ground to grow food. About 10% of global emissions are that, and we don't have any solution for that. So we got to think about some of these things as like, you know, what's the work? And so direct air capture has come into the vernacular now because people are realizing that we've kind of blown it. We've failed as a globe. And that means we have to do a lot more of this backstop technology stuff. And so fundamentally from an economic perspective, I guess the presumption would be point source capture should always be cheaper because it's high concentrations of CO2 easier to extract than direct air capture, which is, as you said, very diffuse. Is that right? Yes. Um, And these things have taken a long time to get people excited because they look like a deadweight economic cost. People are like, you're not making anything. You're just cleaning up a mess, right? And that's kind of true. The flip side of that is that is already now cheaper than a whole bunch of things we already do. So we're actually wasting money doing some things instead of 
point source capture, direct air capture. And again, when the monies get large, people start to notice that stuff. You're saying some of the money that we spend from policy perspective, we are subsidizing some other technology for the purpose of CO2 avoidance, probably, or possibly some version of, you know, displacement, I guess. And you're saying that the cost per ton there might actually be higher on some of those things than it is to just suck carbon out of the air, whether at the at a smokestack or out of the air anywhere. Right. So let me give you an example. We just published a paper on levelized cost of carbon abatement that has some of these kinds of numbers in there, right? So I'm going to give you two different examples that are two different ways to think about it. One of them is back at the Obama stimulus package, ARRA, one of the most popular programs was cash for clunkers, right? And there was a good reason to do cash for clunkers. We wanted people to buy cars. We were trying to get the car industry going. We wanted to clean up pollution and the clunkers polluted a lot. So there was a lot of good reasons to do that, but it was pitched as a climate thing. Like we're going to do this for climate. On a climate basis, it costs between three and $400 a ton. Well, that's a lot of money for that kind of abatement. For today, for batteries, for EVs, we are subsidizing those today at like 1000 to $1,200 a ton, okay? And again, there's lots of reasons why you might want to do that. But if the point is climate, we're paying a lot of money for those tons. The, another way to think about it, another example is, let's say you put solar on the grid. Solar on the grid, good. Like, we all like that. Um, the question is, how much does it cost and how many tons are you abating? And we did a scenario where we just looked at rooftop solar across four different states. And depending on what you displaced and depending on which state you were in and how much solar you made and all that kind of stuff, the costs were between $60 a ton at the low end to $500 a ton at the high end, right? In which case, if you're in New Jersey, maybe rooftop solar isn't the cheapest way to do this. Maybe you wanna do something like capture for CO2 from a refinery instead. And as a public benefit, you still get the pollution reduction, you still get the emissions reduction, you save people money. What about, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but you know, one of the arguments that I think sort of solar proponents as, as a major climate solution would say is like, look, you, it, it's not sufficient to just measure the emissions reduction per dollar spent on rooftop solar in New Jersey. Cause what we're trying to do is, is enact systemic change that leads to a zero emissions electric grid. And this is a necessary step along that path. So in a broader sense, you can say the same thing for like subsidizing EVs, right? We are trying to foster more rapid adoption of electric vehicles, which is going to decarbonize transportation in a significant sense in the long term, even if in the immediate term, our subsidy of that Tesla Model 3 is not delivering like cheap CO2 reduction. Right. So two things I would say to that one, same argument applies for all this stuff. If we know we have to do 5 billion tons of CO2 removal, no matter what, because we know that, that's the arithmetic, and we know that all that we can get on land-based solutions is like 2.5 gigatons, that means we need something on the order of 2.5 gigatons at a minimum every year of direct air capture. So, like, we need to have systemic change, we need to get the cost down, we need to do this stuff, like, okay, like, we know we have to do that, that's part of the work. Uh, and the same thing applies for steel mills and chemical plants. Like most people don't realize how big those things are in the economy. A thing that I like to bring to people's attention is just burning rocks to melt rocks. Just the heat from heavy industry is 10% of global emissions. That is more than all the cars and all the planes. 
all the cars and all the planes are 8% of global emissions. <laughs> Burning rocks to melt rocks is 10% of global emissions. And we got nothing for that. We have no pathways to do that stuff. So to your argument, if you want to affect systemic change, like we got to do this too. It's just one of the things you do. But I'm going to be a little more snide about that response because I get snide comments from economists all the time. And their snide comment is, why would you waste money? Because the goal is not systemic change. The goal is net zero. We need to do net zero the fastest and the cheapest we can. The goal is not to punish Exxon. The goal is to get to net zero in 50 years, in 30 years, in 20 years. And in that, we cannot afford to leave anything behind. And I want to be super clear about this to your listeners. We need way, way, way more solar onshore wind and offshore wind than we have to do that. Like way, way, way more. We need a huge number of efficiency measures that we don't have in the economy. Automobile efficiency, building efficiencies. We need huge, huge rollouts of electric vehicles. And if we did all of those things, we'd be about a third of the way done. Yeah. Uh, we, we've gone uh, on a bit of a tangent, but I want to come back to the, the categories because we've been talking about carbon capture, at least that was where we started here. Um, but let's talk about carbon utilization. You alluded to a couple of versions of that earlier, but I think it's, this is one of the more interesting emerging little subsectors here in my mind, which is basically taking captured carbon, wherever it was captured, captured from, point source, direct air capture, wherever it might be, and then turning it into something useful. And so this is, to some degree, a, a counterpoint to the, why would we just waste money, right? It's just cost money to capture carbon. Um, well, you know, it, it might cost money, but if you can drive economic value out of that captured carbon, then maybe it's worth it anyway. So what are the What's going on in carbon utilization world? Right. So there's two really good narratives in carbon utilization world that I like and that I think are important. One of them is you do make something. Unlike direct air capture or point source capture, here you're actually manufacturing a good. You're making cement or concrete or fuels or chemicals and you sell them. And another is that these are fundamentally circular, right? So you're, you're taking a waste product and turning it into a value product. And circular economy has a lot of inherent interest and value to it. So it's part of the way to get political traction around this and to get financial investment and all this. It's like you're actually making something. So you can compare what you make with what the market price is today. You can figure out what market parity looks like. You, there's a, a bunch of ways to go after this that are straightforward financial investment kind of stuff. Um, the other thing that uh, is important in this narrative is for real renewable costs are dropping. So the thing that's really hard about CO2 utilization is where do you get all the zero carbon energy you need to do to turn CO2 into stuff? And we have an answer for that now that's reasonable. You, solar and onshore and offshore wind like delivers a lot of that. And we are seeing countries like Denmark getting super excited about this, building a enormous overcapacity in offshore wind like 100% more than what their country needs. They're building like 200% grid capacity and offshore wind specifically to turn those electrons into things. And that can be plastics, that can be fuels, that can be chemicals, that can be whatever you want. Talk to me about the economics of those. I mean, they're, it's obviously different for every carbon to something. Um, every something is going to have different economics, but you know, how far are we broadly off the point where 
um, given the input cost of the captured carbon and given the output value of the thing you are producing and given the cost to produce it, which is, as you said, largely renewable electricity, that the economics all work out so that it actually, you know, you don't need, for example, a carbon price and it all just makes economic sense. Right. So the second law of thermodynamics is a harsh mistress. It's really hard to make money when you're using extra energy. So as an example of this, let's take you want it to take CO2 you capture from the air, you want to turn it into methane to run into your pipelines, and then you have fully renewable methane, right? That's actually a thing you can do. You can have circular carbon economy methane. That will always cost more money than what natural gas costs now, right? Because you have to break the carbon bonds and add hydrogen like to make the methane. Like you have to put tons and tons of energy into that, okay? So the idea that you can do this sort of seamlessly into an economy only works for a couple of those products. And the best products for that right now, cement, concrete, aggregate. Because those things automatically carbonate. Those things, you don't have to put boatloads of energy into it. They're small margin projects. They're small volume, uh, small margin products, but they got huge volumes. We move like 30 billion tons of concrete every year. So the idea that you can put a couple of gigatons of CO2 into that, like that stands up. The other way to think about it is what's the highest value product you can make. So methane, you might not ever be able to get there from a value perspective, but ethylene, ethylene is like $1,200 a ton. There's carbon nanotubes are like $100,000 a ton. So maybe there's ways to think about making high value products as a way to bootstrap the technology that you need to, to get into this space. Um, it's hard to make, like you can't balance the climate books on ethylene and carbon nanotubes. Like that's not exactly going to happen. The volumes are too small, but it's a way to add value into a circular carbon economy. And to your earlier point, like, isn't that virtuous? Isn't that something we know we need to do? Isn't that where we need to go? Like the answer is yes. That's one of the things that we think is important. All right. So we've covered capture and utilization. Let's talk about removal then. Um, what are the major categories of carbon removal and what is the current status? Right. So one of the most common questions that I am asked is, haven't you heard about what a tree is? Don't you know about trees? And the answer is yes. I know about trees. Congratulations. The community of people who does this all know about trees. Most of us have seen trees. Many of us climb trees. Like we know what trees are. Um, and in fact, trees are a good thing to do. You know, it's easy to throw rocks at something like the Trillion Tree Initiative is like, you know, some kind of, you know, bonkers, you know, crazy sort of you, thing. You should just describe the Trillion Tree Initiative for anybody who doesn't know about it. Right. So uh, the Trillion Trees Initiative started as an academic paper that was later debunked. But at the core of it's a reasonable idea. The core of it is, hey, if we need to pull a bunch of CO2 out of the air and oceans, let's plant trees everywhere we can, and that's a good thing to do, okay? And fundamentally, there's that's a good point. And part of the reason to plant the trees has nothing to do with climate. It has to do with, again, biodiversity, degraded ecosystems, soil conservation, water quality, helping indigenous species and indigenous peoples. There's all kinds of reasons why you want to plant trees. So the idea behind the Trillion Tree Initiative is if we plant a, bit, a trillion trees, we can get a large volume of CO2 out of the air and oceans. Let's go for it. Okay. Um, the punchline behind that, though, is planting a trillion trees is not the same thing as keeping a trillion trees, right? You don't just plant a tree and walk away. 
what you're actually doing in a Trillion Trees initiative is making tree farms all over the world, which is not quite the same thing. Also, a trillion trees take a lot more land than people are willing to give. They take a lot more water than people are willing to use. So if you just count the tons and you count the trees, like you start getting cognitive dissonance pretty quickly. That's not to say that planting trees is crazy, quite the opposite. There's a bunch of companies I really like, Landlife, for example, WeForest, that have done a very good job about thinking about how to take degraded land and marginal land and put forests on it, right? There's also ways to think about taking a working forest and working it differently to put more carbon in it. It's called uh, Improved Forest Management or IFM. Like, that's good. We also know already we can't balance the books that way. We can't. We can't get close to balancing the books that way. In the most optimistic scenario, trees get you a third of what we need to do. For the most optimistic scenario, about 80% of that one third is just avoided chopping down trees. For the record, we haven't figured out how to stop chopping down trees yet. We're not very good at that, right? And most of that also costs more than $100 a ton. Most of that costs like $200 a ton. When you start getting into the, into the like one third of everything can be done by trees, like a lot of that's wicked expensive because you got to buy a lot of land and pay a lot of people to do the work. And maybe there's ways to improve that with technology, but trees are good. That's a way to remove CO2. Soils is another good way. We have already put 500 billion tons of CO2 into the air and oceans because we've screwed up the soils. It's reasonable to say that we can put that back. Awesome. How do we do that? We have a handful of practices that we know do the job. Uh, cover cropping, for example, looks like something you can do. Um, No-till farming was an early and obvious one. There's an interesting approach that I like, adaptive, adaptive multi-paddock grazing. That's kind of nice. Like there's, it's a way to use pastoral lands in a new way that puts a lot of nutrients back into the soil. Like all that's good. At this point, we don't know if that really works. We don't know how fast it works. We don't know the tonnage we can get. So if we had 300 years, I would be all about soils, but we don't have 300 years, we have 30 years. So what else can we do? And that's where things like carbon mineralization, turning ultra mafic rocks into carbonate rocks. That works. Nature does it. We can do it better and faster. Okay, that looks interesting. Direct air capture. That looks interesting. We have technologies that are on submarines and spacecraft today. Let's supersize those things. Let's amp them up. Let's do what we do on every other clean energy technology and ratchet down the costs. We've got plenty more of Shale and Julio coming up. First, a quick word about our sponsors. Support for this podcast comes from Schneider Electric, the leader of digital transformations in energy management and automation. We live in a new energy landscape. It's driven by decentralization, decarbonization, and digitization. Schneider Electric is at the forefront of it all while developing microgrids that harness those trends. And it helps customers gain energy independence and control while increasing resilience and reaching their clean energy goals. Find out more about Schneider's microgrids at the link in the show notes. 
The Interchange is also brought to you by NextTracker, the global leader in intelligent solar tracker systems, software, and services. NextTracker develops trackers in a holistic way to maximize production from solar power plants. It has also developed NX Navigator, the latest addition to its software ecosystem, which complements the TrueCapture smart tracker control system. It provides additional intelligence and control that results in higher production yield and lower operations and maintenance costs. Find out more at nexttracker.com. And now back to the conversation between Julio Friedman and Shale Khan. When we left off, Julio was talking about different methods of directly removing carbon from the air, and we pick them up from there. And that takes us to things like carbon mineralization, where you take certain kinds of rocks and minerals and turn those into carbonate rocks in the air. Like, we know how to do that. It's expensive, but we can do it. Direct air capture, the technologies that are on spaceships and submarines. Let's supersize that stuff take that CO2 and put it back deep in the earth where it came from in the geosphere. Those things are expensive, but they work. And one of my favorite companies, a little company called Climeworks in Switzerland, they have a facility there that pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere. They feed it into greenhouses like it's a nice holistic thing. That one set of boxes they have does the work of 36,000 trees with the footprint of one tree. So if you got to get a lot of carbon dioxide you got to start engineering these things. And that's just one of the things you, one of the many things that we need to do. We've talked about CO2 removal from the air, but you alluded to earlier that you can also remove CO2 from the ocean. So what does that look like? Right. So one of the things we know is that our carbon pollution has contributed to ocean acidification, which is a huge, huge problem. And we don't have a lot of answers for. So you got to think about pulling CO2 from the ocean. And one way you can do that, for example, is with kelp. There's now like a lot of people who are looking at kelp farms as a way to do this. I kind of like a little company called Running Tide, which has negatively buoyant kelp, where they just go grow the kelp in the ocean and sink it. And like that does the job, right? And we can invent technology that also separates CO2 from the ocean. It's hard, it's expensive, it's problematic. Also virtuous and probably required. So there was an article in Bloomberg this week that you might have seen that was uh, had a provocative title. It was The title of the article was, With Big Oil Declining, Carbon Removal Could Take Its Place. What is your perspective on the size of the, the market for carbon removal? Is it truly a, you know, a future market that looks like oil looks today? When you say looks like oil, uh, it's... From a scale perspective, let's say. Right. So right now, the oil industry moves about 5 billion tons of stuff every year. Okay. So if we, at a minimum, it is highly likely that we will need to do 5 billion tons of CO2 removal. So from a volume perspective, it starts to look like that. It also starts to look like that from a large infrastructure perspective. It starts to look like that from a like pipelines and big projects and capital efficiency and how do you deploy around the world and how do you put stuff in the subsurface? It uses a lot of the same skill set uh, for geoscience and finance and infrastructure. Like it's the same people doing the same kind of stuff. Um, so from an outline perspective, like that's rational. How you get from where we are to there much harder like, and uh, I, I saw the Bloomberg story and I think I'm quoted in it. Akshat Rathi did a great job with that piece of work. But how you actually make that transition is hard. 
because the valuation of oil today at 50 bucks a barrel is about $500 a ton. And boy, we are not paying anywhere close to $500 a ton economy-wide to get the job done. So there's going to be dislocations and stuff like this as we go forward. That's a good segue into another question around the actors here. That Let's just say the demand side of this equation. I mean, obviously, if you're producing some useful product like cement, then the demand side is whoever's producing or buying the cement. Um, but at the, at the higher level, you said we're not spending anything close to $500 a ton. So that can be the government, you know, in the form of a carbon tax or carbon price or something equivalent to that. But there's also this sort of new class of at least a few pretty forward thinking corporates who are, you know, rather than saying we will offset our emissions are saying we will facilitate carbon removal. And so you've seen this particularly from like Shopify and Stripe, I would say, are probably the two, maybe Microsoft as the third on that list. Um, how important do you view that, these voluntary actions from large corporates in getting this market up and running? And as you mentioned, the sort of difficult transition from where we are today to a world where carbon removal you know, approximates the scale of the oil industry. Uh, in that exact context, uh, I'm working now with a company called Carbon Direct, and we all of those people you mentioned are our customers. Like that's like we we are trying to help them do that. We think it's, and I think personally, it's extremely valuable to do this. And there's a number of reasons why. One, those kind of voluntary actions were important in scaling renewables too. All of these companies that made renewable pledges created contracts and supply chains and firm offtakes and stuff like that that helped scale those other industries. They're doing it in the same way with, say, you know, fully circular plastics and, you know, what they're doing it with water consumption, all these things. I'm glad that they're getting into the carbon space now. And we have seen a whole bunch of companies, Amazon, Dow, uh, BP, all of these companies are saying we're going to be truly net zero companies. Right, And those early actions and those early investments are going to make that market. Most importantly, it'll get us down the cost curve on a bunch of this stuff. Because let's say that direct air capture now costs something like uh, five or 600 bucks a ton. That's what you can get for a commercial contract. In, in just a few years, that's going to be 200 bucks a ton. By the end of the decade, it's going to be like 150 bucks a ton. At 150 bucks a ton, you shave $5 trillion off the global compliance costs. Like at that point, it becomes a lot cheaper to do that than other things. Um, at, at $50 a ton for air capture, something like conventional carbon capture is probably 30 or 40 bucks a ton. That makes it way cheaper to decarbonize steel. That makes it way cheaper to decarbonize concrete. And so you, you start those voluntary early actions really help drive down the cost and make markets possible. What all of these companies and the governments that have made them too are finding, boy, it's a whole lot harder than it looks. So let's take the case of Microsoft. Microsoft has announced that they are going to take their 16 million tons and get to zero. Okay. Out of 16 million, they know how to get, say, 10 million tons of that a, a year. That leaves 6 million tons. This year, they've committed to do 1 million tons of CO2 removal in order to work their way up to six, right? Awesome. There's not a million tons out there. You think that there's a million tons in trees that are valid and verifiable, and but it's harder to demonstrate that. Like what's actually removal as opposed to reduction or avoidance? And 
they've taken a pretty sharp scalpel to that. They're working it really hard because they want those CO2 removals to be A-class. They want it to be as good as they can possibly be. But boy, I'm telling you, that's not $5 a ton. That is a lot harder to do than most people think. Those learnings will also help make the market. So last question I have is around the issues that we're going to face as we scale up these new markets, whether it be capture, utilization, removal, or otherwise. What do you foresee as the, the big roadblocks that we're going to need to deal with, apart from just driving costs down to make them economic? Right. So all of this stuff we're talking about, all of it, all of the energy transition, all of it is about internalizing externalities. It is about paying for public goods in some way that we don't quite understand yet, right? Fundamentally, that's really what we're talking about here. And in that context, it's all a policy game. I used to work at a national laboratory. I don't do that anymore. Now I work at a policy shop because you need policy to create money to do the job. Like that's just what's required. And uh, in order to make that transition, we need more oars in the water. We need to try all kinds of things. And so the first thing that we got policy-wise was like a tax credit, 45Q. Awesome. Tax credits are something the U.S. does well. Like we got an investment tax credit for solar. We got a production tax credit for wind. We have a sequestration tax credit in 45Q. Great. For solar and wind, we also had renewable portfolio standards. We had mandates. We had innovation push. We had billions of dollars of grants. We had feed-in tariffs, we had industrial policy, all those things came together to make solar cheap. In the case of offshore wind, we had contract for differences in the UK. We had US energy uh, back in like the 1970s and 80s, putting a lot of money into research. Denmark and the Netherlands put a bunch of money in after that to sort of get the cost down. Like you end up having to do lots and lots of things. So for me, to get the carbon thing doing, I'll come back to where we started. Focus on carbon. What does it take to get the tons? So one of the policy things that's new that I really like is a clean energy standard. So instead of saying we're going to have 40% renewables, we say we're going to have 100% clean. That's the right way to do it. That's a net zero target. I like that. If To get to 100% clean electricity, that's probably going to be like 80% renewables. Awesome. Maybe 10% of it will be carbon capture on power plants, probably mostly gas. Hey, that's great. That last 10% might be really hard and really expensive. So when you say as a law, we're going to have a 100% clean standard, I would want that law to say, oh, by the way, you can do direct air capture as a compliance mechanism. So if instead of spending $500 a ton in New Jersey, maybe you just do some direct air capture because it's cheaper because it saves everybody money. And I think we need to start getting our mind into that context. It's not just handing out lollipops. There's going to be regulatory guidelines. We're going to have to start procuring stuff. The government pays for Superfund site cleanup. Government should pay for carbon cleanup. In which case, what's the cheapest way to clean up carbon? Let's talk about that, but we have to start thinking that way. We have common use infrastructure for power systems. We do not have common use infrastructure for hydrogen systems. We do not have carbon use infrastructure for carbon systems. So there's investment that we need to do in infrastructure to help get us from where we are now to then. It's really going to take an all of the above strategy. We've got to engage 
in international trade disputes to figure out what's a zero carbon standard for coal, I'm sorry, not for coal, for steel production worldwide, for methanol production worldwide. We got to get to zero carbon international standards. And boy, I'll tell you, I worked in the US government. One of the things I learned is we don't make policy in Russia. We don't make policy in China. They got to come along, right? So that's a team effort. Carbon management is going to be part of that discussion. Well, I think the tagline of this conversation is going to be carbon management. It's not just handing out lollipops. That's my, that's my takeaway. Um, Julio, thank you so much for taking the time. This was incredibly informative for me. It was a treat. Thank you very much and look forward to the next round some other day. Absolutely. Again, that was Dr. Julio Friedman speaking with my Interchange co-host, Shale Khan. Shale is the managing partner at Energy Impact Partners. And Julio is a senior research scholar at the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. The Interchange is a weekly show on the global energy transformation. It's co-hosted by me and Shale Khan. Each week, we bring you insights into technology, markets, projects, company financials, mergers and acquisitions, policy changes, market data. And if you like all that, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a rating and review. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you next week.